This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Welcome everybody to this Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law Forum on Displacement and the Academy, Emerging Scholars with Lived Experience Talk Shop. My name is Dr Tamara Wood. I'm a visiting fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law um, and also a postdoctoral researcher at the Hertie School in Berlin. Uh, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you um, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, wherever you may be. I'd like to begin as we do in Australia by acknowledging the traditional lands of the land, the traditional owners, I'm sorry, of the land from which I'm joining this meeting, that is the Muwanina people, um, and acknowledge their elders past, present and future, who, and those who continue to care for the land today. Um, today we have um, a 60 minute um, panel featuring four expert panelists um, who are going to share their experiences, perspectives and thoughts on some of the challenges and the opportunities as, of being an emerging scholar in forced migration studies. We'll have around 35 to 40 minutes of discussion, um, followed by an opportunity for all of you to ask uh, your questions and engage in discussion with us. You'll see at the bottom of your screen, a Q&A function um, that you can use to ask questions. Um, and please do do that um, as we go. It's great to have a lively uh, chat box uh, and to hear your thoughts. Um, I believe you may even have the opportunity to vote for questions that other people have asked and so on. So the more um, that we can interact with you, um, the richer a discussion it will be. Um, this is a, a seminar or a forum that is hosted by the Caldor Centre, along with UNSW's Forced Migration Research Network and the Global Academic Interdisciplinary Network, or GAIN. And it's my pleasure to, to welcome also to provide some um, opening remarks, Professor Jeff Gilbert, who is the chair of GAIN, uh, who will provide some remarks about GAIN to set the scene for the panel today before I'll then introduce each of the panelists. Over to you, Jeff. Thank you, Tamara. Um, and good morning from the United Kingdom. Um, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you might be. This is one of many events that the Caldor Centre has put on, uh, and it's world famous for its work in refugee law. Where does GAIN fit into the work of universities? Well, in paragraph 43 of the Global Compact on Refugees in 2018, academia was listed as one of the parts of the international community that was there to help share burden and responsibilities to deal with refugees who have been forcibly displaced. And in the Global Refugee Forum in 2019, the Global Academic Interdisciplinary Network, GAIN, was launched. In July 2020, when the University of Essex renewed its Memorandum of Understanding with UNHCR, I was appointed the inaugural chair of the GAIN Secretariat, and I work with Rachel Priswell and Anna Carolina Pintadantas at UNHCR to actually sort of try and coordinate. But it's a network. So 
me being here is just a minor part of all the work that academia does as part of trying to sort of meet burden and responsibility sharing. There are three aspects to gain teaching, research and scholarships for displaced students, displaced academics. And as you can imagine, I've been in an awful lot of meetings since the Afghanistan change of government. I'm going to focus in these next few seconds on two aspects, teaching and research. Although they're separately listed in the Global Compact, I've never been able to separate them in practice. Teaching and research go together. In terms of research, one of the initial objectives of GAIN was to ensure that countries in the countries that host 86% of the persons of concern to UNHCR, those 82.4 million refugees, conflict-driven IDPs, asylum seekers, and stateless persons. Those countries are not just seen as case studies for research projects by universities in the global north. That this has to be a collaborative network of academia. The privileges that the global north has had and continues to have should not shape the way that research is continued in this sphere. One of the things that we did of which I'm very proud, is that in January this year, we held a conference to mark the 70th anniversary of the statute of UNHCR and of the 11 universities and research institutes which took part across the world. 50% of the speakers were early career researchers, emerging scholars, and 49% had personal experience of being displaced. That is how one has to ensure that the voice of those who've actually been through forced displacement is continued in the discussions by academia. One of the things that I'm incredibly jealous of the University of New South Wales for um, is one of the things that it put together for its memorandum of understanding, the renewal of its memorandum of understanding in 2020, between, which includes the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law and UNSW's Forced Migration Research Network, is their Emerging Scholars Programme. Caldor took part in the January conference, but this, this amazing support it gives to emerging scholars around the world is something that the University of New South Wales should be incredibly proud of. And I am very happy to be participating today in this session and to be able to listen and hopefully learn so much. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank you so much, Jeff, for those introductory remarks. And it's my pleasure now to introduce our four panelists, all of whom are members of the Caldor Centre's Emerging Scholars Network. Tina Dixon is a queer feminist activist and a doctoral scholar at the Australian National University. Ahmad Akkad is a doctoral scholar at the University of Warwick. And Teu Kai is a doctoral scholar at the Australian Catholic University. 
All four of our speakers today bring their perspectives as early career researchers in forced migration studies, but also as people with lived experience of displacement. To our discussion of life in the academy and representation within that academy, in the, specifically in the field of forced migration studies today. I've had the wonderful privilege and pleasure to work with our speakers today as part of the Calgary Centre's Displaced Scholars Peer Mentoring Program. This is a program that began earlier this year as a partnership between the Calgary Centre and the Raoul Wallenberg Institute at Lund University in Sweden. And it aims to address two of the things that Jeff just mentioned. Um, firstly, to provide sport support to clearly strong emerging scholars in the field of refugee and forced migration studies. But secondly, to make a small uh, modest contribution to work being done to increase and enhance the voice of people with lived experience within the discipline. Clearly there's a lot more that needs to be done uh, towards these goals. And that's why I'm really so grateful to our panelists today for joining us to share their experiences and their insights um, so that we can all learn more um, about the role of displaced academics in the academy and what can be done to enhance that going forward. So I'm going to begin my questions um, with a question to you, Ahmad, because you're conducting your doctoral research on the role and experience of displaced scholars, particularly in post-conflict reconstruction. And in recent years, uh, the issue of how displaced scholars and displaced people are represented in academia has been getting increased attention. Given that you're addressing this in your, your own research, in your view, why is this important? How does a lack of involvement or a lack of representation of people with lived experience impact on the quality um, of scholarship and academic knowledge in a field. Over to you. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you, and Jeff, for the introduction. It's my real pleasure to be here with you today to share my experiences and thoughts. Um, well, to answer your question, I think it's really important to ensure that power is shared and uh, uh, more voices or more diverse voices are heard and valued. And uh, I think the underrepresentation of displaced uh, scholars uh, who have been impacted by forced migration means that they are uh, largely absent from, uh, let's say, decision-making bodies and key conversations. So I think it's really important to uh, ensure that they are present in these discussions and that they have voice and role in, in such conversations. Um, I believe it's also a major issue of epistemic plurality and epistemic justice. And that has been um, you know, discussed by many scholars and mainly uh, Miranda Fricker and it's about the idea of welcoming uh, different types of knowledge from different people that, uh, let's say, that are not only Eurocentric or they are within the peripheries of global North countries. So I think it's really important to invite different, uh, or let's say, other uh, scholars and um, specifically people with, um, uh, let's say, a displaced background in order to cooperate, in order to work together, and in order to contribute to produce knowledge together. Um, so I think um, we need to see displaced scholars as uh, uh, not only bringing their own lived experience for research, but also as, uh, let's say, scholars in the first place who are able to join uh, intellectual communities and intellectual conversations with, uh, uh, let's say, um, other countries or other scholars. 
And I think uh, uh, they can bring a wealth of, let's say, uh, alternative epistemologies that are different from ones that are centered in, uh, let's say, the West or in global North countries. Um, moving to the second part of your question, um, I think that um, this can be answered um, by, uh, you know, focusing on the idea of that there might be a disjunction between theories and approaches or frameworks that are, let's say, devised and prepared uh, in, in countries in the global north, on the one hand, and the reality where these are applied in global south, uh, on the other. And I'll give you a, a very direct example from my, my research about reconstruction, and that the idea of uh, the project of reconstruction is uh, mainly prepared or, uh, let's say, planned by, for example, the UN, by donor countries, by the International Monetary Fund or, or the international community, while at the same time, people in, 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 in uh, let's say, the local communities might not really agree on these, uh, on the plan of the, the, this project and how it's implemented. So, um, and maybe also its goals might be different from what they are aspiring for, what they need. And I think academics here, they have an important role in order to express uh, and articulate, let's say the desire and the wants of their local communities um, and then to make a change. And I think um, these people, they, they know the gaps in the country and they know the problems that they have better than someone who is an outsider that may have a kind of, uh, let's say, little understanding about the context that they are researching. And even they don't know the meaning of the, the terminology of, for example, reconstruction and what it means in the, in the language of that country that they are researching. So I think it's very important to, uh, uh, let's say, have different types of scholars and different types of uh, uh, voices uh, 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 that are working together to produce an effective outcome in the long run. Te'u, I'll turn to you because you're also conducting doctoral research on access to, to higher education for refugees, particularly living in camps along the Thai-Burma border. Based on this experience, how do you think education can increase uh, refugee participation, so in civil society, in government, and in other decisions that affect them? Um, thanks, Tamara and Jav, for the intro. Um, so to answer your questions, um, yes, based on this experience, I would say that access to education, especially um, access to higher education increases refugee participations in civil society, in government, and in the decisions that affect them. The refugees in the camps are being forced um, to be nearly completely dependent on outside help for like food, um, shelter protections, and other basic needs. So their coping mechanisms have been negatively impacted. And plus travel and work restrictions have had negative psychological and social effects on them. And this leads to decreasing their self-sufficiency and mental health, especially for um, students with refugees backgrounds, access to educational opportunity is um, kind of an important means for restoring dignity, security, and hope. So I think higher education is very important for them. And uh, it is a tool of empowerment that um, enable displaced people to pursue unproductive and meaningful lives and while providing a safe and stable environment during study and into the future. So I think, um, 
providing higher education opportunities to the refugee students um, will increase their knowledge, professionalisms, and skills, which will positively affect their long-term development. So without adequate educations, um, the refugees will not be able to sustain them economically if an opportunity for repatriation presents itself. However, um, I think it's unlikely given the situations the current political situations in Myanmar. And also while um, awaiting repatriation or resettlement, higher education provides refugees with a protective use of their time, um, which will reduce the amount of um, crime and other problems in the camps. So access to education should be available to everyone everywhere. I think it is important that um, preparing um, the next generation of leaders through international focused higher educational programs could be an important factor in assisting the marginalized communities um, in making better decisions about their future. And I think it can be achieved through increasing access to university education programs and scholarship opportunities to international higher education institutions. So to sum up my points, I would say um, higher education helps promote self-reliance, a sense of self-worth, participation in civic and public life, and decision-making for their future. Thank you. Thank you, Teo, and you make a very compelling argument um, for enhancing such access. Let's look now at some of the barriers to that access. And Tina, in your work as a, as a scholar and as an activist, you integrate academic and policy work across a number of roles. Structural barriers to education and the dissemination of research as well are, are big issues. What are some of the barriers that you see affecting the work of displaced scholars, both in terms of the production of knowledge, um, but also in terms of institutional culture? Thanks, Tamara. I think, um, and I really relate to what Kulud was saying about the actual access at the, you know, at the start. And I think for those um, displaced scholars who um, who fled from a context where, for example, there were really visible human rights defenders, quite often universities do not understand those experiences. And that, for example, it's impossible to reach back to your university for, you know, explanation of the grades because you will essentially, you know, tell where you are located now. Um, I guess there is also um, that real lack of recognition of um, that people really lose time, right? Like in your displacement journey, by the time you come to the education, there's so much loss there in place um, that, you know, and then you also have a lot of um, obligations back home with your communities. And, you know, you can't just be that student who, you know, only engages, for example, with PhD and cannot, you know, like that, like you still have to engage, for example, with paid employment and, you know, and the activism work. But I think the question of um, barriers to the dissemination and knowledge production is something that's really interesting for me um, because working on um, in, on the intersection of migration studies and queer theory, I really clearly see those barriers um, playing out, especially in refugee spaces where you either have kind of a default silencing, right? You look at the gender refugee research that presents some, um, some very homogenized category of who can be a refugee. And it's really rare that um, either gender um, or sexuality is part of that, right? You either have a very specific research for you um, or you even have the resistance you know, to be able to bring those perspectives into the conversation. Um, 
And then for the academic who comes from the experience of displacement, I think that your, your displacement background becomes this kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's useful and you can legitimize your research or you know, your knowledge production um, just by saying, well, you know, I am coming from this background. But it is also quite often used against you because for example, you are requested to, to you know, legitimize your experience, to um, talk more about your story, to talk more about your positionality. And the same questions are not asked of you know, just Western researchers who's somehow interested in the refugee topic without a need to even explain why particular cohort, why particular research question, that kind of thing. Um, and I think, you know, as also as soon as you try to put that kind of a different point of view from the mainstream academia, um, definitely gets to be used sort of against you that, you know, you're not necessarily um, objective, you know, you don't produce the kind of research that is very objective. Um, precisely because you have um, that lived experience. And I think lastly, one last point that I want to make is also um, quite often I see that there is, you know, there's lots of, so for example, you would speak on panels like this, right? And you make points, you talk about barriers, people really praise you for doing those points. But then I don't really see much support. And I guess, you know, it's really great to have this program with Calder Center when you do that peer mentorship, but I don't see that much support within the academia of those academics who are much more established and who work in these spaces, refugee spaces, who will help you mentor, who will help you build a career, who will help you understand how to navigate the Western academia. Because I think, especially if you've done this back in your home countries, the systems might have been different and, you know, the approaches and, you know, the rules kind of of the game could have been different. And I really want to see more of that mentoring and uplifting the researchers with lived experience that I see exists at the moment. Te'u, based on your research and your, your experience, what do you see as some of the barriers that young people face um, who've experienced displacement or been impacted by displacement in accessing university education? Um, thanks, Tamara, for the question. So to answer it, um, first of all, I think it's important to note that Thailand is not a party to the 1951 convention or its 1967 protocol. So um, for 30 years now, Thailand's policies um, have been to confine the persons of concern to their temporary shelters until the situation in Myanmar would improve and so that the displaced could go home. Um, that's why protracted refugee situations has been going on for such a long time and on the border and refugee basically have only two choices, either resettlement or repatriation. Um, there's no integration or whatsoever. So um, on the border implementation of long-term assistance such as education is not a priority for the host country like Thailand and uh, access to public services is also very restricted. So students with um, refugees backgrounds face several common barriers to assessing higher education. Um, like, first of all, all refugees um, students have limited educational opportunities. Um, so the issues for uh, many young refugees is that what happened after they finish a post-10 school here, which is the highest um, level of education available in most of the camps. Um, there are only a handful of schools on the thai Burma border where these um, young refugee students can apply for it. So 
that leads to thousands of potential and aspiring refugee young people with no means um, to educate themselves. Um, second, um, I think um, certificates are not officially recognized outside of the camps, and uh, there are also limited educational pathways or university education programs to compensate for that. Um, one of the most prestigious schools available for refugee young people here is the Australian Catholic University, which offer um, diploma in liberal studies in Mesot as well as in Renong areas. But um, as these opportunities are only available to a few students um, each year, um, thousands of capable young refugees are left with no means to pursue their higher education. Um, actually, many young people here are determined to help their people in their country, uh, but with no place to go for a study. So they often end up like opening a shop or becoming a nurse or a teacher in the refugees camps. Um, some leave the camps to find factory work in Bangkok or um, go to other places in Thailand and um, while many others um, turns to drugs and alcohol and even commit suicide. Um, and also they have no freedom of movement as well as self-expression. So having lived in a place where freedom of movement as well as self-expression is negatively restricted, many young refugees feel scared about um, leaving the camps even to pursue higher educations, um, say in other camps on the border or um, let alone attending international university. Um, so I think with the temporary crisis becoming increasingly protracted, um, it is time that I think um, we rethink the focus of refugees policy so that refugees are not only sustained, um, but also have the um, opportunity to move towards autonomy. And I think we can also focus a number of approaches to reducing the barriers um, that refugee faces in terms of assessing higher education um, with scholarships, online learning, recognitions of refugee education or certificate that they received from the camps. Thank you. Thank you, Teu, and thank you all of you. You painted a very complex picture of the, the structural challenges, but also the very personal challenges that can come um, with being a scholar in this field. And, and Teo, you're also pointing us to the some of the other implications that barriers to, to education can have in other parts of people's lives. I'd like to turn now and building a little bit on what Teo was, was talking about to think about some of the practical considerations in, in conducting research um, in this field. And Tina, I'll, I'll turn to you if that's okay. Um, in refugee and forced migration studies, qualitative research is quite common and, and scholars may seek to undertake interviews um, or other engagement with people who've been impacted by displacement. And as a result, this can invoke all sorts of ethics approvals and requirements within universities. What kind of ethics um, questions and issues do you think are important um, in your research? And how does this sit with, with standard university ethics procedures? Mm. Thanks for that question, Tamara. Um, 
I think, you know, overall, ethics is really important because it protects both the researcher and people who participate. But I do think that in particularly in this field, the university processes are quite outdated. Um, in my research, I'm working with queer and trans refugee women who are already in Australia. Um, and first of all, once you do say you work with refugees, they get to be designed as a default level of vulnerability without necessarily understanding the conditions and, for example, the context in which we are working. Um, but also what I found that, um, again, my experience of displacement being put against me and sort of questions that are asked and expectations are quite unreasonable um, from you, which I don't think they get to be asked any other researcher who wants um, to sort of go on and, and do this work. What I found for myself was really important is um, is that own understanding um, of the responsibility before the community. And I think we see a lot of, um, I guess, the research happening on the refugee issue um, altogether, but quite often that research is not necessarily bringing some very tangible benefit to the community back, right? People are going in, people are sort of over-researched with yet another survey, another exploration of, you know, this concept or that concept. Um, and it's, you know, you can see how communities sometimes are really feeling over-researched. And for me, it was important that there was that process of giving back, of, of communicating, um, of, you know, explaining as well um, why particular things matter, of working together or working on the timeline that is a timeline of the people as opposed to sort of my deadlines and, you know, and, and the pressures. And I think from this, what I, what I learned, what is important for other researchers engaging in this work is real having time to build that trust with the community but also to build those relationships of power sharing of reciprocity that you're not just doing the research for the sake of research or for the sake of your you know your title your career but you know we're talking here about real group of people um who actually you know regardless of which countries they're on and you know regardless of the context they still need some changes those systemic changes um to occur um, I also think that um, quite often because of the amount of the research, um, people, people as refugees felt sometimes obliged to participate because you do want to contribute to that knowledge production. I myself know you know, people approach me as a participant, you kind of find it hard to say, but I think it's really important that within the academia, we really have those experiences and that sharing because quite often people take time of their employment if they have or you know the expense of something else to be able um to participate um in there and I think it's important to be sharing sort of what what like what are the reasons for doing research what are the preliminary outcomes but coming back really briefly to the ethics within universities I also found that while there's a lot of processes in place to sort of protect right your subjects there's really nothing in place to protect you as a researcher from learning about those experiences. And I think we're not necessarily talking so much within academia about vicarious trauma. Um, we're not talking so much about, you know, your own mental health and healthcare and, and what impact does it on you, especially when you have the same lived experience to, you know, to kind of know and to, to be holding those other stories um, in you. And I think this is the areas where actually there could be much more work done for that, you know, not the ethics, for the sake of you know waiving any legal responsibility for the university but actual ethics for protecting and you know for supporting that collaboration between the researcher and the participants. Thank you Tina you've really highlighted the importance of thinking about ethics beyond a uh, um, liability question and to think about you know more than doing no harm but you know what 
what really the reasons for doing research are. Turning now to some of the, the practical considerations that arise in the context of, a, of the global pandemic, which of course has changed um, many things about life. Um, Teu, you've been particularly impacted by this because your ability to travel to Australia uh, for your PhD at ACU has been impacted by COVID-19 and travel restrictions. While you've been waiting for that, you have been participating in events like this, like the virtual peer mentoring program and so on. I'd be really interested to hear your perspective on how technology might be opening up opportunities for people to engage in academic conversations, um, but perhaps also if there are disadvantages to this and, and what is lost um, in using technology in this way. Um, thanks, Tamara, for the question. So I personally think that um, technology and the widespread adoption of online platforms have both um, advantages and disadvantages in changing the ability of refugee young people to undertake university study. Um, first of all, I think that the use of distant education or online study is one of the advantages because of its flexibility and convenience. If the refugee students cannot attend university physically outside the camps, um, bringing education into the camps um, seems to be a practical solution, right? And these options would allow uh, refugee students access to and international education while continue to be um, restricted in movement. And this also cuts um, through the challenges of applying to physical university and it allows students to continue learning immediately um, without um, having to worry about language barriers or being overwhelmed by a pace that is too fast or too slow. Um, second, I think it's um, cost efficient as well. Refugee students can improve and uh, acquire knowledge through cost effectiveness. And also, um, yes, like I said, this um, shifting to online education can be credited for the decrease in educational cost. And it provides students with a comparable learning experience without the need for expensive infrastructure, travel expenses, and other miscellaneous fees. In university, um, we have like um, US online university, like University of the People, um, and it offers some scholarship to students um, born in Myanmar and then Myanmar students for, from refugee backgrounds to study American accredited degrees at the university virtual campus. So stu um, students can choose to study in one of the four areas that they offer, like uh, business administration, computer science, health science, and education, and offers um, through certificate program, associate degree, bachelor, master's degrees. Um, so I think offering the opportunity of higher education to uh, not only refugee, but also migrants, asylum seekers, and displaced people who are traditionally not able to access to universities, their future can be positively changed um, because of the adoption of online learning platform. Uh, possessing a quality and accredited degree will impact their personal circumstances um, positively. Um, however, um, that being said, um, there are some disadvantages that came along with it. Um, first, political reason. 
like here, the Thai authorities have been hesitant in allowing an unrestricted internet access in the camps due to fears of the camps becoming centers of anti-Burmese government activities and information. Second, it is costly and it can create inaccessibility and technical difficulties. Um, like refugees have no means of income, of course, and they have limited or no access to digital devices and Wi-Fi. And plus, they can hardly get electricity in the camps. Uh, some of the camps are located in remote and mountainous areas where um, Mobile signals are very weak. So even if they want to use internet data with their mobile devices, it's hard for them to get an internet receptions that is stable enough for them to log in Zoom or other online learning platforms. Uh, third, I think um, refugee students have limited technological or computer literacy. Most of them lack of technological competencies in utilizing online tools. Um, so to sum up my points, I think technology and widespread adoption of online learning platforms can change the ability of refugee young people to undertake university study, but we also need to be aware of some of those um, disadvantages and maybe um, consider some solutions for that as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Teung. I'd like to think that one of the advantages of technology has been to enable things like what we're doing right now and, and to bring people together who couldn't come together before. But thank you for reminding us that it's it's not an equaliser. It doesn't um, erase the inequalities that, that persist. Ahmad, I'd like to come back to you. We've heard um, about the barriers to participating in education from, from Teung's research. Tina was talking particularly about the lack of opportunities and supports for scholars in Australia. I wonder about your perspective from the UK where, where you're studying um, and what kind of um, level of practical support is there in terms of visa support, funding, mentoring, special consideration and so on, um, given by UK universities uh, to displace scholars. Yeah, I think I um, I absolutely agree and share many of the um, the comments that my colleagues have just made regarding the obstacles and challenges. Um, and I'm going to answer your question in uh, regarding, uh, let's say, not only the UK context, but globally as well, because that applies uh, across different countries. And that is going to be in terms of mobility and funding. I think um, the, um, the mobility of displaced scholars is really difficult compared to uh, international academics who are able, for example, to move freely from a country to another. And that is because of, um, let's say, the, uh, the problem of being able to get a visa in order to move. And that is based also on the uh, being labeled as refugee or displaced person. So I think uh, the ability to move is really conditioned by legal and political considerations and regulations. And I think that is, um, you know, will make it difficult for displaced scholars to attend conferences and academic events, uh, for example, in different places, or to come to the UK in order to, uh, uh, let's say, present or do studies. Um, and, and I think also our ability to get, uh, let's say, academic re recognition and to get a kind of academic position after having, uh, let's say, completing a PhD is also uh, uh, conditioned by uh, being able to join international talks, um, going to uh, academic events 
and uh, this usually comes through networking you know um and uh, unfortunately this might be difficult uh, uh let's say for the space colors and it's important to know that um you know getting that recognition is uh conditioned by uh being able to take up these opportunities and um unfortunately going to attend conferences or to join academic networks um sometimes require um the space scholars to visit that uh, or let's say to move physically and have a visa in order to be able to go there and this is my this is a major concern for many displaced scholars that they are not being able to uh, uh to move and accordingly that will make them see these like having gaps and and I, and then as a result they will end up not having let's say the jobs that they are waiting for or they are looking for i know that nowadays we are making use of um you know um technology like uh, zoom and microsoft teams in order to uh, let's say join such uh, um, academic networks and conferences, but we, we don't know for how long that will be the case. Um, in terms of funding, I think in the UK they they are doing a great job, and, and, um, um, and I'm going to give you an example about an NGO which is the Council for At Risk uh, Academics, CARA. Um, they're providing um, you know fellowships, funded fellowships, and research opportunities for many um, scholars displaced scholars in specific around the world but unfortunately it's important to know that these opportunities are temporary and that's going to make it difficult for uh, our displaced scholars uh, in order to secure a permanent academic position in the future so it's very important to provide more opportunities that are uh, longer for example in, in, in terms of period and to vary the types of opportunities so that uh, displaced scholars are able to uh, find an academic position in the end. And uh, Tamara, it's also not about only giving access to opportunities, but, but also following up after giving access with these displaced scholars. Um, I think it, access is not just the end. Uh, it's just one form of, you know, continuing support. So it's very important to follow up with academics and see what they need and the support that they might be, uh, let's say, need for. And especially uh, many displaced scholars are vulnerable and they are new to the context that they come to that they have arrived in or that they are uh, start they have started to work in. So I think um, it's important to be with them to see what they need and to check if they are doing the right thing, especially if you are a new a new person in a different context, even if you're not displaced. I mean, being a new context really makes it difficult to uh, find your feet or let's say to grapple in the dark until you know where you are so i think <clears throat> it's important that to, to, to be with the displaced colors after giving them access um and, and because otherwise you will have um and i think um i could see some of my top participants in my research who ended up having cvs that are really full of gaps because of not uh let's say lack of knowledge about opportunities the lack of uh let's say support lack of understanding how to succeed as an early, uh, early career researcher so it's like grappling in the dark not knowing what to do and i think it's very important here to provide that knowledge to to displace scholars um because knowledge i think it's implied at university but not made explicit for these people so um, um it's really important to provide these opportunities and uh to just like we're doing here in the Calder Center, having a mentor to be with you and 
you know, providing um, useful opportunities and support uh, when it's really necessary. Thank you so much, Ahmad, and for reminding us that because the challenges are so multifaceted, the support needs to be multifaceted as well. And, and your final comment then reminded me of a conversation I had at the very beginning of developing the peer mentoring program. I was speaking to a scholar who has experienced displacement about what kind of support was needed. And she said, sometimes you just need someone to walk with you. You know, you don't necessarily need someone to write your CV or to give you interview skills or something. You need someone just to support you, just to be there and, and to walk with you. Um, thank you so much to those of you who've been asking questions in the Q&A um, box. I really hope we'll have time to get to, to a few of those before we, we finish. Let's think now about looking to the future and, and what is possible. Interestingly, a number of you have asked in the, in the Q&A, you know, what can um, other scholars do to be supportive. So Julian's just given you a great suggestion is to share your um, experience and guidance um, on this topic. Ahmad, looking ahead um, for you, your research uh, very recently was profiled on the Caldor Centre's website. Uh, and in your profile, you talked about uh, the insecurity that faces early career scholars as they come to the end of their PhD. Um, and you've started, you were telling us some of this now about you know, the expectation that you'll be mobile, that you can move to a new city and a new place. How does this represent a barrier to, to displaced scholars embarking on academic careers? And how could PhD scholarships or other forms of support um, improve this sense of career uncertainty? Yeah, Tamara, I think um, really it's securing a kind of um, a postdoc position, for example, or an academic job after completing a PhD is really risky for displaced scholars because that depends on the, where the opportunity um, is present, whether it's uh, inside the country they are um, you know, seeking asylum or in a different country. And even within the, the same country, if it's a different city, also it makes some, it, it creates some uh, problems for displaced scholars. And I'll give you an example about my experience with volunteering with the Coventry Refugee and Migrant Center. I volunteered with them as um, um, an advice caseworker, and I know that refugees, they can receive support from the government when they are, or if they are, uh, let's say, um, on a low income. And um, 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 they need to register with the city council in order to get that support. And um, if we think that displaced scholars are getting some of that support, because, um, you know, especially for these people who are, have just arrived in that country, so if they are taking support and they have found another opportunity in another city and they need to move to that city, I think it's gonna be uh, very problematic because they need to register again in the, uh, the council of that city and they need to show documents and prove that they still need support. And that's really um, compounds the situation for the likes of uh, displaced academics. And uh, this is also compounded by, by having more, a family, for example, more children. So also personal lives can really be, uh, um, can have some kind of influence on their work and their future uh, opportunities. And also another, another, uh, another um, example about the difficulty that, uh, that space clothes are facing are related to their residency. Um, you know, sometimes um, in some countries of asylum, they ask the uh, refugees or displaced people to remain in the country for a number of days and uh, let's say uh, not staying within 
the same a number of days or let's say the same period that is required will affect their residency and uh, let's say indefinite leave to remain and that might be revoked by time. So imagine that a displaced scholar has found an opportunity in a different country, but they are not able to go there because of the residency, uh, let's say difficulty or obstacle. So they will miss it, of course, then and, and, and many opportunities that are valuable in different countries will be lost because of that legal uh, requirement of staying in, in the country. Um, but, but how forms of support to, uh, can be improved, I think one way is to provide unconditional funding for uh, let's say uh, uh, displaced scholars, especially the early career ones. And um, this is in order to build up their CVs, to, to attend our uh, conferences, to join academic networks and to prepare them for any academic opportunity that is available within their country or the institution they are studying in or, or working in. And uh, that could take place in the later stages of their PhD work in order to make them you know, capitalize on their research and study in the early stages of their PhD, especially if they have just arrived in that country and they feel like they need to adjust to that environment and context of their uh, work. And I think another suggestion is to um, offer remote or virtual opportunities, especially for the, uh, the opportunities that require, um, you know, longer stays abroad, such as postdoc, which might require uh, a couple of years abroad. Um, and we can do this just like we're doing now in the time of COVID. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we have turned to online working and online uh, study as well. So I think this might be a good option to uh, obtain uh, opportunities while you are in the same country. That's just, you know, a couple of suggestions. Thank you so much, Ahmad, and a really great way to lead us into the, the Q&A. Um, and, and again, for those of us listening who are looking for suggestions that we might be able to recommend to our universities as well as things that we can do um, ourselves. Um, we've had some really great um, suggestions there. I'd like to turn now to, to Jeff to see if you'd like to provide a brief response, Jeff, before we, we go to Q&A. And if I can beg just a few more minutes of everyone's time, we might um, just take an additional five minutes so that we have a chance to, to respond to some of the wonderful questions that you've asked. This is picking up on one of the questions in the Q&A, which seems to recognise that I might have been around for a while, asking me how things have changed during my career. Uh, and yes, I have been around a while. I've been very privileged to work for over 30 years now at the University of Essex and was started at the Human Rights Centre. And the Human Rights Centre has always had displaced scholars coming in various times due to crises that have been happening since the 1990s. So that experience of being educated by them as to how to respond is being sort of built into me right from the start. And that it's my privilege, okay? I have gained, there's no question. So things are better than they were, but that's, it's tiny. And there is so much more to do. When you consider that only 3% of displaced people end up going to tertiary education and how many go on to postgraduate tertiary education. One of the things that Tina said, which is so important, is the need for those working with either displaced scholars or students, vicarious post-traumatic stress disorder. It's real. 
the University of Essex has put in place now for over five years, training in dealing with vicarious PTSD. We've got, through the Human Rights Centre, we've got a thing called the Digital Verification Unit, where we have PGT students, doctoral students working on uh, images and text coming in to try and sort of identify human rights crises. That we recognise right from the outset needed support. Those working with displaced students and scholars need backup as well. I mean, yes, clearly the person who's been displaced needs more. But the people who are working in the environments alongside, they need backup as well. And just to go on to how things have changed. Now, the voice of displaced persons is something that is taken for granted and not in a tokenistic fashion. There was a while, maybe 10 years ago, when you had a refugee on the panel and maybe the refugee asked the questions as though their experience, just that was how you had the voice of the refugee. That's changed in most places that I work with. It's now, and as I said, it was one of the great privileges of the 20, January 2020 conference, that 49% of the persons who actually spoke about protection and solutions were people who had lived experience of displacement for a variety of reasons. And I, picking up on the things that it was asked of Tina, and I agree entirely, NGOs cannot be the gatekeepers, okay, of knowledge. We need to make certain that the research we do is fed back so that the people we speak with, the people who give us the information that we use, is shared and that's best done by ensuring that all research done by universities in the global north is partnered with local universities. That's the best way of ensuring that the people who are in those countries who've been displaced get to hear about how that research can be used. It's, it makes it, there's no point me writing an article in the International Journal of Refugee Law if, and hope that that gets read. On that last, I want one thing to say here, and this is in praise of Jane, Professor Jane McAdam uh, of the Caldor Centre. One of the things that she initiated this year was the expansion of the editorial board of the IJRL, so as to make certain that we had a much more diverse group of editors. And one of the things that she's instituted along working with the Emerging Scholars regime, uh, Programme at Caldor is that where we receive articles that are of quality but need more support in the same way that the emerging scholars regime at Caldor works, that we give that to people who submitted articles to the IGRL wherever we possibly can so that those articles get published as well. But I'll let Jane speak more about that within the Caldor Centre and the Emerging Scholars Programme at Caldor. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'll turn now to um, some of the questions we've received. And so there's um, 
quite a collection of questions asking what, what can allies do? And I'd love to give each of you a chance to respond to that just very briefly. Um, but there are also a couple of questions um, on different topics and, and one that actually Jeff just flagged. Uh, John Cole has asked um, a, for panelists response to researchers from the global south feeling compelled to work um, with or to incorporate research from the global north for their research um, to be published. And I think this taps into a broader question about um, collaboration. What are the benefits, but what perhaps are also, what might be lost from collaboration or an expectation um, of collaboration? Te'u, uh, would you like to respond to this question? Um, sure. So um, I like um, Doug Buff explained it about, you know, like um, cooperations between the scholars from Global South and Global North. And I totally agree on um, that point. Like uh, I personally have a lived experience. And I think that like when the scholars come from a like live experience, then you have so much experience and things to share. So I think by collaborating with the um, Global North scholars, I think um, uh, it, it could um, lead to one of the um, like producing the high impact journals. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tehu. Um, I'd like to go to a question that, that Madeline's asked and um, I might direct this to you, uh, Tina, and also give you an opportunity to, if there's anything you want to add on the collaboration point. But Madeline's asked, do, do any of the presenters ever feel the burden of needing to educate colleagues um, about their ignorance and shortcomings when it comes to being a good peer or a good mentor to scholars from displacement backgrounds? And she asked, how do we strike the right balance between ensuring people with experience of displacement have their voices heard, but also not draining or exploiting them by expecting them to repeatedly, as, as some of you have noted, you know, tell their stories, educate and bear that labour um, cost of doing so. Would you like to share some thoughts on that? Thank you. And thanks for that really interesting question. I completely agree about the burden to educate people on their experiences because I think that the displacement experiences are complex and sometimes um, people who come from a different experience may not necessarily understand and relate on, you know, both, I guess, even the burden of doing the research and the responsibility you have towards your community and you can't just go home and switch off the like I'm done for the day I'm no longer thinking about this issue anymore because whatever happens around you in the media like in your family your community has a constant effect on you and I think um but in terms of also one more other point that I want to make is sometimes that when you do make those attempts to genuinely share, um, they are sometimes made with defensiveness, especially when we're talking about homophobia, transphobia in academia or racism. And I think it's really important that academia is actually doing much more work on the decolonization, on you know, the racial justice and having that, you know, people who, people educating themselves on those issues as well and actually coming with an open mind to listen to what's caused a displaced cause to sharing with them. To the second part of the question, I think it is really important to rethink what we think about this story, right? Every time we say refugee story, it is the default that everybody only wants to hear about the past, but why, right? Because I don't think that also displacements end at the point when you even get a visa and you, know, you become a citizen of the country, there is a lot of things 
like putting you back into those experiences, like questioning your belonging, like you're not seeing you as a part of this particular community that actually continue their displacement in a different format. And I think we have to rethink that if we are actually about meaningful inclusion, if we are about sharing that power, how does a displacement journey look like? What are the ways to actually partner with people, you know, to recognize those experiences, but not to kind of fetishize them for those experiences. I think it's also in terms of the kind of a good allies and partnerships, it's really important to actually offer those, you know, joint projects, those research proposals, the papers together, right? If you already have a big name and it's a little bit easier for you, can you be that mentor? Can you publish with someone else? Um, so it is easier for them um, to enter into those um, spaces or even, you know, other opportunities that, maybe you do not need to be the lead on that opportunity. Maybe your CV and your career is already so well built that you can actually take a pass on this one and help someone else um, to take that space um, and to learn and to really progress with their career. Thank you so much, Tina. I think that's a wonderful point to end on, that advice to, to be a collaborator, to be a partner, but that doesn't always mean that you have to have your name on the thing, um, that there are many other ways um, to do that as well. Thank you so much um, to everyone for being part of this event. Thank you especially to our panelists, to Teu, Ahmad and Tina for, for so generously sharing and doing that work to educate us and, and to make us more aware. We really appreciate it. Um, and let this be just the beginning of um, future conversations and future meaningful practical steps, um, such as the ones that we've heard about today. Just before we conclude, I'd like to do a couple of things. So firstly, I'd like to um, also thank our partners in organising this. So the Global Academic Interdisciplinary Network, GAIN, and uh, Jeff, thank you very much for being here. Also UNSW's Forced Migration Research Network, who partnered with us to organise this event as well. Continuing on the theme of the discussion we've had today, I want to make you aware, if you're not already, that um, the Forced Migration Review, a publication that you're probably, most of you are familiar with, um, has recently released a call for a special issue on titled Knowledge, Power and Voice, which is, so they're seeking contributions on many of the themes that we've been discussing today. So for those of you who are interested and, and have um, great contributions, including all of our panelists. I hope you'll consider um, contributing to that. The other thing I want to let you know um, about that's coming up in this very Zoom uh, sort of space is the Caldor Centre's annual conference, um, which is on climate change, disasters and displacement. That's next week or the week after, uh, two weeks time, I think. Um, but that's um, going to be a really wonderful collection of panels and discussions over several days um, on the topic and very timely as well in the lead up to discussions um, at COP in Glasgow uh, later this year. You can find out information about the conference on our website, you can register online. There are a number of um, groups who are eligible for free tickets to that conference, including um, refugees, scholars from the Global South and anyone um, who is unable to pay um, to attend. So please, if you're interested to join us for that, do register. You're not obliged to attend um, all of the sessions or anything like that. You're very welcome to, to register and then dip in and out as you want. We'll have some interactive breakout sessions in between the formal panels. There are sessions at different time zones as well to, to enable everyone um, to participate. Um, so I really hope that we will get to see you there. 
Finally, um, when we established the, the peer mentoring program that we mentioned earlier, we really hoped that this would be a first step um, or a small step anyway at the Caldor Centre in creating a, a scholarly community that really does put the perspectives and the voices of people with lived experience at the forefront. Uh, and I feel really feel that in the last hour, we've all benefited um, from that endeavor. So thank you again to everyone who's participated. Thank you to everyone who has joined and I wish you a very good morning, afternoon, evening um, or night. Thank you very much. Thank you.